0: Black holes are often portrayed as scary, world-eating monsters, but what if they are actually the batteries that will power our future among the stars? So today we are looking at how we can potentially use black holes in the future, and it's a topic we actually covered early in the channel, but I thought it deserved a second visit and an expansion. Black holes offer a lot of options for any civilization that can master them, and it's too much for one episode, so we'll do a crossover series looking at their implications for some of our other episodes over the next few months, and today we will focus on their use in moving spaceships in our Generation Ships series. We'll follow that up with an Outward Bound episode on Colonizing Black Holes, and then a visit to our Space Warfare series with Weaponizing Black Holes. But we should start by talking about what black holes are and what they are not, and how artificial ones might differ from natural ones and the various ways we can draw energy from them. Contrary to popular belief in fiction, black holes do not just suck material into them, indeed a star that's turned into one has a lot less gravitational force than it used to and you could normally fly by one far closer than you could fly by a star of the same mass without being harmed in the least bit. It's common to say that black holes are so massive that even light cannot escape them, but this is wrong. It's less common, and less inaccurate, to say that black holes are so dense that even light can't escape them. But both remarks paint a false portrait that's only right because our most common known examples of black holes are those naturally created by stars dying, which are of course quite massive. There is a concept in physics called an event horizon, which like the normal horizon on Earth, is a place where you can't see events occurring beyond it. The difference is that on Earth, if you live in a village you can walk over to that horizon, see what's going on, and walk back home to tell everyone what you saw. Obviously if you lived on a planet that was a big balloon, constantly expanding, you'd have to walk further to get to that horizon as it's further away on larger spheres, and you'd have to walk faster than it was expanding in order to take a look and come home. At an extragalactic scale this gives us something called the Cosmological Event Horizon from the expansion of the Universe and in general, in physics, it means light speed because that's the fastest we, or any information, can go. While a black hole is a name more fitting for the event horizon of an object, where gravity prevents light from escaping, rather than what that object is, we are rather stuck with the term these days. Every object in this Universe has gravity it gives off, based on its mass though in fact it's the total energy it has, not its mass that really matters, mass just happens to be the type of energy most usually relevant for this. The gravity generated by this pulls on you and there's a speed, based on that mass and how far you are from it, that you could be moving away from it so you'd never be pulled back to it and thus would escape, the escape velocity. The equation for this is just the square root of twice the mass over the distance from that object, usually we're talking about launching from its surface so that distance is that object's radius. Looking at that equation though, you note that the mass increases or the distance from it decreases, the escape velocity will rise, and if either the mass rises enough or the distance drops enough, that escape velocity will rise until it reaches the speed of light. It doesn't magically stop there or anything, you can go higher, but no photons are going to reach you from that place, you will see darkness even if someone will shine a flashlight at you from in there, a black hole, and you can't see what they're doing as they are over the horizon where you can see events. Any mass, at all, is going to have a distance this would occur at, but it's usually less than the radius of the object, and once you get lower down a lot of the mass generating that gravity is above you and has to be discounted. If you could compress it all down to a tiny point then any mass would have an event horizon, but to generate an event horizon the size of a typical living room you'd have to compress the planet Jupiter down into a space that size. And Earth would have to be compressed to the size of a marble. The problem is, when you compress stuff, it heats up, and little particles that are hot enough can escape from a planet if you do, and naturally occurring massive objects are inevitably composed mostly of hydrogen and helium, which fuse and release more heat, shoving things apart. Even if you took iron, which cannot fuse, and packed it all into one place, The heat released as it crunched up would vaporize those outer layers and blow them off, so just stacking endless trillions of tons of iron somewhere would only make a black hole if you took your time about it, letting it cool as you added mass. Hypothetical iron stars collapsing into black holes is something we looked at in Civilizations at the End of Time and can exist exactly because they have eons to cool down, as they slowly form by quantum processes, given the series title, this approach isn't too fast, though you can do it faster than that. So black holes just don't form naturally below a certain mass, a mass greater than our own Sun, but that only covers natural formation and we're not limited to that approach and the physics doesn't change for how they operate if they're smaller either, though a lot of their properties do. Now we'll focus on small artificial black holes throughout this series, but there are ways to use existing black holes, natural ones, for useful purposes including propelling spaceships. The problem is that naturally occurring black holes are really very uncommon. Only about 1 in 1000 stars that form is massive enough to die as a black hole, and they tend not to be located where they'd be very useful for the typical civilization, particularly considering their presence would be prone to discourage civilizations evolving there. We'll talk more about how civilizations could find them useful in colonizing black holes in three weeks, but in terms of running starships, we do have a few options. First off, The easiest way to locate black holes these days is by their accretion disks, matter that falls into orbit around them and slams into other matter as they slowly decay in orbit and fall down. The same as anything falling down a gravity well, it gains a lot of energy as it does so, and will release this as radiation, which so long as it does it outside the event horizon can be captured and used, like any other energy. This is the conceptually easiest way to tap black holes for power, you spray a jet of matter at it, aiming just off to the side so it enters a close and elliptical orbit, and that jet will create a nice whirlpool of matter that gets crowded and hot and turns that black hole into a big power plant. For a non-rotating black hole, such a process can let you achieve a 6% matter to energy conversion rate, That sounds measly, but remember, that's matter to energy, E equals mc squared, throw a gallon of gasoline on a fire, 2.75 kilograms of mass, and you'll release 120 million joules of energy. Throw it down a non-rotating black hole yielding a 6% mass energy conversion and you will get almost 15 quadrillion joules back, 124 million times more energy than burning it got you. Of course the black hole gets even more, but it did a lot of the work to get that, so it deserves the lion's share. This is also much better than using a sun, since fusion generally doesn't even give you 1% mass to energy conversion, and most stars don't fuse all their matter and take a long time doing it, indeed the most efficient ones live half of eternity, whereas the really bright ones that give off the most power tend to explode long before they've burned more than a fraction of their mass. Your default black hole is thus a way more efficient power reactor, and you can also throttle it a lot better than a star. You're also decently likely to find a nice big source of matter nearby a black hole, since even though they have explosive births, a supernova is not actually powerful enough to rip apart gas giants in outer planetary orbits. In fact, one of the ways to find a black hole is to notice a brighter binary companion wobbling around it. Another way to make one is to start with a less massive neutron star and stuff its binary companion into it too. Needless to say, if you've got a giant power reactor you've got an engine, but in this case it would be a slow one like the Shikata thruster method of turning a star into a big spaceship, except you can achieve a higher final speed with one though it will be gaining mass while you do this, we've a better way of converting black holes into engines we'll get to in a moment. The other obvious method would be to fly a spaceship near one to slingshot off it, but you are not a cloud of gas, so you can't afford to get too close. This still offers a fairly nice bump in speed, even to ships moving fast enough to consider interstellar trips on reasonable timelines but it's also a very good way to change your direction on the cheap. One reason black holes might be popular colonial spots down the road, ships planning really long trips might tend to aim in their general direction so they can change their course closer to their destination, which might be prone to changing if you're part of a big colonial effort where folks might need to change plans as they got closer and find out more about possible destinations. However, we are not a gas and we are not likely to have thousands of ships trying to use one for course changes all the time, so it's actually better to turn it into a big power plant and use that to run giant pushing lasers or matter beams to shove ships with instead, not to mention power a civilization nearby, or vaporize one, which we'll discuss when we get to weaponizing black holes. Despite these problems we have some other ways to tap black holes of this size for power and the force is just about remembering what I said about non-rotating black holes earlier, and in nature they are inevitably rotating and very, very quickly. We've got two methods that take advantage of this, the Penrose process and the Blandford-Sanjic process, which allow much better than 6% at more like 20-43% to of mass energy conversion, partially by robbing energy off the black hole from its ergosphere, which incidentally is not a sphere. We will not delve into that today beyond noting that ergospheres are messed up regions of spacetime above the event horizon created by rotation, from which you can extract way more energy than you could by skimming over the event horizon of a non-rotating black hole. You could never plausibly take a spaceship into the ergosphere of a typical solar mass black hole and bring anything living out, even for the more extreme definitions of living we use on the channel. But you can extract energy, and we think it is what powers quasars, those enormously energetic events we see in distant galaxies which we believe to be the accretion disks of supermassive black holes. Given that a quasar is usually pumping out thousands of times more energy than an entire galaxy, you can see why a scaled-down version of this makes a nice power plant. However, these approaches, while they can be used for moving ships, mostly do so by otherwise mundane methods, acting as a power source for matter or energy beams to push ships, or a gravity well for slingshotting. The exception to this is turning it directly into an engine of a truly enormous ship, which I will go ahead and name a Quasar Drive, and we'll talk about that and why you do that more in two weeks in Fleet of Stars. Channel regulars are probably already assuming we'll be moving on to talk Hawking radiation next, since these big black holes are obviously not ideal for regular sized spaceships but there's a very large mass gap between natural black holes and the kind we'd want to use for Hawking drives, and trying to make black holes in that range and use their power is tricky, maybe impossible, so let's consider scaling our quasar drive down a bit first instead. To make a black hole you just need to get a bunch of mass or energy in one spot, at a density high enough that it would be inside its own event horizon. This can potentially be done several ways. The conceptually simplest is to replicate nature, build yourself a great big ball of iron and wrap that sucker in H-bombs and implode it. The second would be to slam two such bodies together at very high speed, amusingly a similar process to how the gun-type nuke works, and also mimicking nature a bit here too, as colliding neutron stars are thought to produce black holes, not to mention earthloads of gold and other heavy metals. We've discussed the concept of a relativistic kill missile here before, a plain old hunk of metal accelerated to relativistic speeds, usually by turning huge stelazos on them to push them up to speed. One way to make a black hole would be to have two star systems with laser pushing devices shoving a pair of RKMs up to enormous speed which then slam into each other, and since an LKM need not be a simple metal slug but could have some computers, propellant, and guidance on it, such a terminal rendezvous should be doable. Indeed you could probably time things to have a whole bunch slam together at once. An RKM potentially carries many times more kinetic energy than its mass energy, too. And as mentioned, it's really energy, not specifically mass, that matters for gravity. A black hole event horizon has a radius or diameter linear to its mass. Double the mass, double the width. So it's actually easier to make bigger ones than smaller ones, because you don't need as high a density. For Hawking radiation-driven ships, These really are only useful in the low megaton range and preferably kilotons, and we'll explain why in a moment, but while that seems great for a ship, practically ideal, there's no guarantee we could make, let alone refuel such a black hole, so a much bigger artificial black hole, but still a relatively tiny one, might be all we can do. There's no real technological hurdles to making an artificial black hole by implosion or collision, it's just brute force. Ramming two big trillion ton iron spikes into each other at 99.9% of light speed is no easy task, but requires no new physics to do it. You make the smallest black hole you can, then feed it matter and grow it if you need to because this method of black hole power generation benefits from size, and is about feeding the black hole. Your feed mechanism then also doubles as your attachment for keeping your ship tied to the black hole. Black holes respond to force same as anything else does, you just don't want to shove on it with your hand or anything else you want back. So your ship is basically being pulled toward the black hole and you use the matter beam feeding it to shove you away from it and everything else involved here is ionized and carrying a charge so you can use magnetics to direct things. I want to emphasize though, these are big ships, even by this channel's standards, hardly the biggest ships we've discussed, or will discuss, but we're not talking the Millennium Falcon or Firefly here, or even the Enterprise. You only go this route if you can't make black holes less than a megaton which is already ten times more massive than an aircraft carrier and would just be the drive. If the smallest black hole you can make this way is a billion tons, then your ship and black hole fuel presumably mass in that range too, and now you're talking about something O'Neill cylinder sized. If the smallest you can make and feed is one with a nanometer radius, just a bit bigger than an atom, so you can cram atoms into it, Then you're looking at ships massing around a quadrillion tons, which are likely to be Death Star-sized objects, or if more long and skinny, dozens of kilometers across and hundreds long, assuming a density just short of water. However, we do have a couple other ways to pack matter in tight. One example is dark matter, which to the best of our currently limited knowledge only interacts via gravity. So you can find another way to interact with it, and move it about. You could potentially pack the stuff in absurdly tight without having to worry about it slamming together to heat stuff or fusing. Incidentally, dark matter would just tend to buzz around a black hole, only falling in when it actually rammed the event horizon. Needless to say, we currently have no idea how to manipulate dark matter or even what it is for sure. Indeed micro-black holes, left over from the Big Bang, is one of the candidates for dark matter, but if we ever figure out how to manipulate it, employing it for gravity and mass is one possible usage. However, we have other particles that don't mind being close to each other, or indeed occupying the exact same spot. These are called bosons. Examples include the Higgs boson, the gluons that glue quarks together, the Z and W bosons that mediate the weak nuclear force, and photons. Photons are light waves, and even a laser pointer can make, aim, and focus them, so this really is old school technology. Much more precisely aimed photons become much more handy than using them in a PowerPoint presentation, so the notion would be to make a huge laser and mirror array that lets us dump a huge number of them into the same spot at the same time. This creates a Kugelblitz black hole, it's what lets us seriously contemplate making black holes down beneath the megaton range that would produce a lot of Hawking radiation. Needless to say, this likely requires a huge power source, like a star, to get all that energy together, and an awful lot of mirrors to keep it all bouncing and focused. Light moves rather fast so if you're trying to make something smaller than an atomic nucleus, which light would fly by in a mere billionth of a trillionth of a second, you need a lot of juice and a lot of precision. This is where we get into Hawking Radiation, because other methods all involve big and massive ships or infrastructure, and generally need to be bigger and more massive to produce more energy, and often grow in mass as you produce energy. Hawking Radiation is the reverse, the less massive it is, the more power it gives off. It falls off with the square of mass, half the mass, four times the power, make it ten times more massive, get only a hundredth of the power. Lifetimes go with the cube of mass, ten times more massive, a thousand times longer lived, as they evaporate slower and have more to evaporate. Your typical natural black hole gives off so little Hawking radiation. That you'd have problems detecting it, even with our best equipment. Natural black holes are expected to live nearly forever. That Hawking radiation is why it is nearly forever. We've got two common explanations for this: the virtual particle explanation and the classic Hawking explanation, which is similar to the Unruh effect. Most of us find the virtual particle explanation easier to give, folks, but it really isn't ideal. Virtual particles are always a bit dubious, as an explanatory tool anyway, and always leave folks wondering why the negative mass ones are the ones that fall into the black hole. Still, it is the one I've used in the past for discussing the matter, mostly because I haven't heard any other examples I felt didn't require a heavy familiarity with special or even general relativity to make sense, and we're really only interested in how much power these things produce. Last year PBS Spacetime did a really good explanation of Hawking Radiation and of the Unruh Effect not long after, so I'll link that instead for today. For our purposes, what matters is that black holes are theorized to produce a lot of power when they are tiny, again falling off with the square of mass. I will also link Victor Toth's Hawking Radiation Calculator, based off Jim Winiski's one a lot of us use to save time. Though there's always some debate about Hawking radiation values as we've no solid model for quantum gravity, which certainly matters when you're packing a black hole's large mass into a horizon that's quantum sized. Using that method, a 1 megaton black hole would emit 356 terawatts of power and live 2,665 years, slowly evaporating mass and also growing brighter as it did one ten times as massive, 10 megatons, would give off a hundredth of that, 3.56 terawatts, and live a thousand times longer, 2.7 million years. One a tenth the mass, 100 kilotons, would give off a hundred times the power, 35.6 petawatts, and live a thousandth the time, just 2.7 years. Needless to say, if you can feed them matter as fast as they expel it as energy, They will keep emitting power at the same rate and never evaporate. For that 100 kiloton one, you need to feed it about 396 grams a second, or 34 tons of matter a day, any matter you can stuff down its tiny gullet. The megaton one would need a hundredth of that, 34 kilograms a day, and the 10 megaton a mere 340 grams a day. Not bad, considering this big, weak one puts out two thousand times more power than the Hoover Dam for power output. If you can't feed the mass, which is dubious because you can make them, that's still a very long-lived battery you've got there. One important reason why it might end up being a battery is if the process for making it is wasteful. Grazers, basically lasers operating in the very small wavelength gamma ray frequency band would be the best candidates to create these Kugelblitz black holes, and they don't currently exist, so we have no idea what their efficiencies would be or what energy source we could use to run a grazer. If it turns out we need fission or solar power, that could limit the black hole to being a battery as creating it could be less energy efficient than powering the ship using a conventional reactor generator. Until we actually build a grazer and a Kugelblitz black hole, we have little idea of what the feeding of the black hole will entail or its efficiencies. Incidentally, since someone always asks why I tend to give black holes in tons not kilograms or pounds, it's mostly the same reason I do it for spaceships or space stations. Normal seagoing craft are usually discussed in their tonnage, and sci-fi tends to ape that, thus so do I. And since we're talking about it as a ship component usually, values get given in metric tons. Plus, I think the kilogram is a stupid basic unit. Battery or generator, there's lots of ways to use the Kugelblitz black hole's power to run a spaceship's engine, but if you happen to have something reflective to gamma rays, which we don't yet, you can just spit it all out the back as a giant photon drive, and if we use the megaton example, and assume nothing but near weightless ship around it, that thing would experience 0.12 gs of thrust, or 10 millig. if we assume the whole ship, black hole included, weighed 12 megatons, or about 120 aircraft carriers. Okay, that doesn't sound fast, but like an ion drive, it's not that it has a lot of thrust, it's that it will keep it up a long time. Now we could boost that by the same method we could run the thing if we didn't have gamma reflective materials, which is by dumping gas in around it to soak up the gamma rays and get hot and ionized and shoved out the back. But that is paying a mass penalty, as you will run out of fuel much faster than if you crammed it into that black hole, incidentally it is not sucking any or much of that gas in itself because it is smaller than an atom and emitting a lot of energy, so it's like trying to cram a basketball into a spewing garden hose nozzle. Now the 10 megaton version produces a hundredth the power and has 10 times the mass to push around, a thousandth the acceleration, while the 100 kiloton version is emitting 100 times the power and has a tenth the mass, so we're getting a thousand times the acceleration out of it you also see much higher figures for power output in this mass range in some discussions. Like I mentioned there's debate about models and I'm opting to use the one with a handy calculator available online because I know my audience and many will want to put in their own values. Kicking it down to 10 kilotons of black hole and that same ratio of ship, you've got 10,000 times the power of that 1 megaton black hole pushing a hundredth the mass a million times more acceleration, but your black hole would only live a single day, unless fed, and would be emitting about 15 times as much power as hits the Earth from the Sun, as a giant gamma beam out the backside, just as a reminder of why we say there's no such thing as an unarmed spaceship and why space travel is very energy expensive since you could light several planets up with that much power, instead of pushing a few thousand folks around. Again, depending on models, each tends to have a sweet spot for the ideal mass of a black hole as a ship drive, and it always depends on if you can feed the thing, and whether you can do the straight photon drive. If you can feed it, you can also just add more smaller black holes to up your power output for a bigger ship need twice the power, slap in two black holes, if you can't do a smaller one or if it's not practical to feed it matter. They're great for efficiency and high maximum speed anyway, as they match antimatter for mass energy, and even if you lose a lot of that by using mass superheated by absorbing the gamma it gives off as your thrust, it still beats a fusion drive and that version is easy to throttle. Get a megaton one and you've got a power source that's quite good compared to a fusion drive, even adding propellant to get that higher thrust, that will last you millennia. You just have to refill on propellant occasionally, and literally anything works. If your fuel storage gets ruptured, you can still slow down the slow way. Even without a gamma reflective material, you can make a large containment chamber, and let that heat up to produce radiation in wavelengths you can reflect, that's the same trick we discussed using for making black holes into fake suns earlier this year. Plus, unlike antimatter, they don't explode, or at least do so at a set and easily calculable time. Since they are subject to the rocket equation, they do not quite match a laser push system, which also gets to double up by bouncing light off a ship, not just emitting it. However, you can use them to power those lasers far more efficiently than a star or fusion reactor will, assuming you can make larger stationary ones you can feed. An unfeedable black hole is just a battery, not a generator, though that's often handy too. The big problem with laser highways is that you are dependent on that beam. Someone can shut it off, and there are problems keeping it on target, especially at long distances. So you get back that freedom of being able to steer your ship wherever you want, when you want. They work great in combination with laser highways too, same as we discussed for a fusion economy in Colonizing Neptune. You use the beams when you can and the engine when you want, and you can get up to a very decent fraction of light speed this way. Such a ship ought to be able to pull off half light speed, depending on what you're carrying and how efficient your setup is and if you got help speeding up or slowing down. A black hole based ship though, of any of these varieties we've discussed today, is but the tip of the iceberg that a black hole economy and civilization offer, if we can master them and if our theories about them are mostly correct, and we'll be looking at them in more detail in coming episodes, So stay tuned. So I get asked fairly frequently about a lot of the graphics we have on the channel these days and a great number of those are done in-house by various animators and graphic designers who volunteer their time to bring these awesome ideas to life. Indeed that's part of the reason we revisited the topic of black hole ships as the original video only had animations I'd done and my talent for that, especially back then, was nowhere near as good as what they produce. Needless to say, I can't thank them enough, and you can always see more of their work by clicking on the links to their various art pages down in the video description, where we always list the editors and musicians who help on the show too. And if you've an interest and time to volunteer helping out, we're always glad to add to our numbers. And I'd also always encourage more folks to try their hand at making their own YouTube videos. Animations and graphic design take practice to get real good at, but it doesn't take too much to get started, and if it's something you've an interest in learning, it is a topic that there are a lot of top-notch courses for over at Skillshare. I particularly recommend Polymatter's How to Make an Animated YouTube Video, since Evan starts at the beginning and walks you through how to do an entire video and how to do it without buying lots of expensive software or hardware, and that includes learning to do it, because you can join Skillshare for 2 months for free, and have access to that and many other courses on graphic design, or browse from over 20,000 courses on a host of other useful topics. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 20,000 classes, covering everything from practical daily skills to things like programming, writing, or science. A premium membership gives you unlimited access to high-quality classes on must-know topics so you can improve your skills, unlock new opportunities, and do the work you love. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. To sign up, visit the link in the description, and the first 500 visitors get two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for free. Act now for this special offer and start learning today. So, as mentioned, we'll be looking at colonizing black holes in three weeks and dig more into a lot of the tail and industrial applications black holes might have. Next week, though, We'll be returning to the Upward Bound series for Sky Platforms and look at some of the launch concepts for getting into space by starting off already high up in the sky. And two weeks from now, we'll be back to this series to look at the possibility of using entire stars or whole fleets of them for colonizing the universe and reshaping our galaxy or even our whole supercluster in Fleet of Stars. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed this episode, please like it and share it with others. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.